there are two very distinct types of people in the world, and you are either one or the other. There are the people who love self-checkout at Kroger or Walmart and think there is only one way to ever pay for your groceries, and there are the others who we wish you would never use self-checkout again because you just clog up the line for the rest of us. Here's why this bothers me. First of all, I need you to know this also. McDonald's now has self-checkout, and it's really awesome. I go to McDonald's too much. But, But here's why this is important. I worked at Home Depot in college, and one of my jobs was to help run the self-checkout. So I I like to brag that I can even do self-checkout in Spanish with no problems. I don't know any Spanish words except for how to run a checkout and how to eat Mexican food. But after that, I'm good to go. Um, And so here's the thing is it's a very simple process, okay? Someone painstakingly went through the entire store and scanned the barcode of every item you could possibly buy and then weighed it. So the computer of the self-checkout reads the barcode of what you're paying for and then expects that weight in the two little sections right next to where you scan the barcode. Your job is to scan them and then place them on the scale. Doesn't seem that complicated, but I've been behind some people who that's a lot of work, right? It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. But here's the, the good news. Unless you're at Kroger in the middle of the night, there is always a checkout person available at a checkout lane for you to do it for you. So you don't have to do it. I thought this would be a lot funnier than it is right now most of you are like, Are we seriously talking about the grocery store right now? (sighs) So we'll move fast. But here's here's what I think is so funny. A couple weeks ago, I was at Kroger, and um, this gentleman was at the self-checkout next to me. Gentleman's probably a loose term for this guy. But he is scanning his groceries, and he he puts all the stuff on the scale. And he looks up at the cashier, the the girl who's running the self-checkout, and he says, where do I punch in my employee discount? And she kind of looked at him, and I, my ears perked up because we have two boys at our house, ages two and four, who are already eating me out of house and home. So if Kroger offers an employee discount, I might be getting a part-time job as the click list shopper. <laughs> like, I, this is going to be bad for us. But as I, I was looking, and she kind of looked at him, and she was like, you, I'm sorry? And he's like, yeah, the employee discount. And she said, sir, that, that, we don't have one of those. And he said, well, I figured I'd get one because you make me scan and bag my own groceries, so I might as well get a discount. And this poor girl, she's like 17 years old. She's working part-time to pay for her car insurance. And this man just yelled at her, and she's like, sir, you don't have to go to self-checkout. And like, I'm a sympathetic crier, and I'm like, I'm going to fight this dude right here, right now, like, jerk. But it's this, it's this thing where this guy... I, I chuckled, too, because I, I, A, I knew this was going to be a sermon illustration. B, I looked down the row at Kroger, and there were three different checkout lanes open. And I was like, you could have just gone over there. Clearly, you saw this meme on Facebook and wanted to see if it worked for real. You, you need a life, sir. But I, I, I couldn't help but laugh, because when I go to Kroger, the last thing that I want is anyone's help. Like, you know, if you can't find something that your wife puts on the list that you buy every week, but you still never remember where it is in the store, I don't know, hypothetically, that might happen to somebody here. Um, and you have to ask the, the, the ladies or the, the workers at the store, like, where do you keep the peanut butter? And they'll say, oh, it's just three aisles over. Let me walk you over there. And I say, no, no, no. 
I don't want anyone else to know that we had this conversation, so just point me in the right direction, please. Right? Like, like it's, 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 I, don't, I don't want anyone's help at the grocery store. I'm paying Kroger just for their food. But everybody's different, and everybody has different opinions about it, and that's fine. If you don't like self-checkout, it just makes the line shorter for me. It's all good. But there's this thing, and I noticed it in this guy. He wasn't that much older than me, but I've noticed it in people older than me. I've noticed it in people younger than me. It's an attitude that I think the best way to describe it is probably going to be a little bit difficult for you. But I think the best way to describe this attitude is entitled. Now, here's here's the rub, right? Because you hear me say that people who demand service and people who ask to speak to the manager and people who who make a big deal out of this or that, and and I call them entitled, what you hear is is you hear the description that everyone loves to use of of millennials, or you hear the description that everybody loves to use of of such and such and so and so's. But what I want you to to hear with me here for this one moment is, yes, you, you paid for that. Yes, you, you, this is what the store says will happen. But what happens is that we get so consumed with ourselves, we get so caught up in who we are and what we think we've earned, that we become entitled, right? We say, I paid for this, I, I bought this, I pay your salary, my taxes, whatever, whatever it is, whatever it is, you, you kind of come with this attitude of even if, even if you've paid it, even if, even if you think you've earned it, there still comes this air of entitlement. And I know that this is a dangerous thing because some of you right now are just staring daggers back at me like, boy, you don't know how much sweat and blood and tears I've poured into this money I've earned or, or this right that I have. And, and I get that. But I'm telling you that that attitude is dangerous. That that attitude will lead you down a path that will lead to your destruction. You see, we live in, in 2018. In the United States, we live in a consumer-based economy. Any economist worth his salt will tell you that what matters most to the American economy and to, and to the American people is, the, is that the, the economy is based on consumer metrics. You look at all of the measurements they use for how we're doing as a country, for how we're feeling, for how jobs are going, all of them are based on whether or not people are consuming things. My favorite fact about recession versus uh, progression in, econ- in, in quarters is that it's a good quarter if men's underwear sales are high. I know, it sounds crazy, right? But listen, hear me out. One of the ways that they measure whether it was a good quarter or not is if men's underwear sales are high, then they know that men and, and people in general were confident enough in the economy and confident enough in the money they had to spend money on underwear. If they're not high, then they know that people are <laughs> not buying underwear because they're, they're skimping and they're tightening their belt, as it were. And it's really interesting that everything you look at and everything you read, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to how we're doing, comes from consumer. And whether or not we're buying, whether or not we're eating, whether or not we're consuming. Here's the biggest danger of that. The biggest danger of that consumer mindset is that it leaks into what you do here. The biggest danger of your consumer mindset isn't that you spend too much money on on things, isn't that you have a bad attitude, it's that it leaks into your relationship to Jesus. Because I'm going to be very, very blunt with you, it doesn't fly here. 
This is not a place for consumers. This is not the kind of place where you come to have all of your, all of your wants and, and, and desires met. This is not the kind of place where you come and you can just dictate your preferences and someone will say, my pleasure, and, and bend over backwards to make it happen. Following Jesus, being part of a church, is the exact opposite of what being a consumer is. And this is the part where it gets really blunt because I'll tell you that if you don't like that, I'm fine with that. There are other churches in this community who would love to cater to your every want and need. And they would love to hear from you, the person who just wants to come and sit in the pew and just wants to come and just be a body that gets counted. They'd love to know how to make you happy, whether it's the lights are too bright or the lights are too dark, the music's too loud, the music's too soft, the music's too old, the music's too new. Whatever it is, they'll make sure that you're happy and they'll find a spot for you to just sit in a pew because that's all they want. And there's churches that are bigger than us that think that. There's churches that are smaller than us that think that. And I've got news for you. We don't think that. You'll notice we don't send out uh, member satisfaction surveys. You'll notice that a lot of times things aren't necessarily what you would have liked or done. There are times where things here aren't what I like or would do, but it's not about me and what I like. This is about something much bigger. This is about creating a community of people who are devoted to something far greater than themselves. Because our biggest concern is not me. And that's hard. And it's not an easy thing to commit to being a part of. Right? Every, every aspect of your life is designed for your comfort and your enjoyment. Everything you do is designed for you to get what you want when you want. Everything else fits the consumer mindset. But this place and this book will never fit a consumer mindset. It is not about you. And that's not an easy thing to digest. It's not an easy thing to digest if you're five or if you're 75. It's not an easy thing to digest if this is your first week here and you're going, oh, okay, uh, maybe I'm not welcome here. You are. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's not an easy thing to digest if you've been here for the 41 years we've been at church either. This is a hard topic because there is not a person on this world who I believe is not ingrained inside of them a desire to take care of themselves more than anything else. And so what happens over time is that, is that people feed into that and they find out they can make money off of you doing that. And there are churches that find out they can put butts in seats by making sure that it's all about what you want and making sure that it's exactly what you want to hear whenever you want to hear it. And I got news for you. We want people to come here, but I, I don't care if people don't like what we say. Because we're not a church for consumers. But this problem isn't just an American problem. It's not just a problem that's been a thing since 1776 or since 1970. This is a problem that has been going on from the beginning. In the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, the first two people, Adam and Eve eat from the tree that they're not supposed to because they want what they want when they want it. This is the whole story of humanity, is that humanity has always been wired to only care about ourselves. But this is the story of our church, 
and this is the story of Jesus, and that we're supposed to be wired to care for something far bigger than us. It happens even when Jesus is around. In the book of, in the book of Mark, chapter 8, is where we're going to be today. If you want to open your Bible or get out your phone or, or continue playing Candy Crush on your phone and pretending like you're reading your Bible on your phone, whatever of those fits you. Um, but if you want to go to Mark, chapter 8, I'm not playing Candy Crush. I'm looking at Facebook. Whatever, it's all the same. Um, but if you want to go to Mark, chapter 8, that's where we'll be. And in Mark, chapter 8, we read the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. And it's this cool story where Jesus is teaching this large crowd. There are some Gospels who tell you that it's 5,000. There are some Gospels that tell you it's 4,000. One of the reasons that number doesn't bother me, two of the reasons that number doesn't bother me, is number one, it could have very well happened more than once. I mean, Jesus is Jesus. He's doing this thing for three years. I bet more than once he had to feed a large crowd. Number two is there very well could just be a discrepancy between Mark and Luke as to how they're counting the people. Right? One of them could have counted children. One of them could have counted only adults. You know, it, it, it's all the same. It doesn't bother me as a discrepancy, but it's there, and I acknowledge that it's there. But in this, in this story, Jesus is teaching this large crowd of people, and he's teaching in a way that people don't want to leave. And he keeps going, and they keep listening. But eventually, people start to wear down and get hungry. It happens to you all at about 11.25, because you start to go... It happened to the people in Jesus' day. And as they get hungry, they start rumbling, and, and, and the disciples come forward, and they say, Jesus, the people are hungry. And he says, well, go and feed them. And they're like, feed them with what? There's no restaurants. There's no, there's no pizza delivery places. There's no caterers. What do we do? And he says, go see what food you can find. And they find one boy whose mom sent five loaves of barley and two fish, which sounds like a terrible meal. And Jesus takes the five loaves of barley and two fish, and he continues to break them off until there's enough food to feed the 4,000 and 12 basketfuls left over. When I get to heaven, one of the replays that I want to see in life is I want to see how he did it. Like, do you think he just kept breaking off bread, and the bread just kept going, whoop, and getting bigger again? Like, did he just pull it out of a basket like a magician, like, here you go, like the, the handkerchiefs that just keep coming? I, I don't know, but, but it happened. And it happened to a point where everyone saw it, and this crowd just starts following him. But Jesus does this thing that I think is so counterculture to their culture and so counterculture to our culture, right? This crowd starts following him, and you'd think Jesus would be like, all right, here we go. But Jesus knows something bigger. He knows the heart of most of these people is they saw this guy feed 4,000 people. They saw this guy heal the sick. I think he's pretty cool. <laughs> let's, let's see what we can get out of this deal. And so Jesus sees the crowd continuing to follow him. And instead of saying, let's go, let's do this right now, what he says is, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So the first thing Jesus does is he looks at the crowd and he looks at the people and he goes, listen, y'all don't really want to stick around. Like, oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And he goes, no, no, no. He says, if you really want to be a part of this, you have to give up 
everything. And the people start to go, oh, you mean everything. And they start to walk away. You see, because they saw the feeding and they saw the healings and they hear the cool teachings about love and peace and they're like, ah, I'm in, I'm in. And then Jesus goes, no, no, no. To really be in, give it all up. Give up yourself. I kind of relate this to getting married. Um, I will use my mom and dad as an example because Whitney and I, we've been married eight years. We have yet to have a fight other than, no, you hang up first. Um, so I'll, I'll go with my parents because it's better. Some of you are like, really? <laughs> you don't know me very well. Um, but my mom, oh, my mom told me this story not that long ago that when she and my dad went on one of their first dates, she took an eight-track tape out of the player. I don't know what that is, but apparently it's a thing, right? <laughs> she took the eight-track eight tape out of the player and put it in his, in his middle console, and he got upset because she put it back not in the place where it went because his eight-tracks were in alphabetical order. If you know my dad, this doesn't surprise you in the least, right? His eight-tracks were in alphabetical order, and my mom put it in out of order. And so they're on a date, you know, and things are fun, and she's like, that's so cute. He's so adorable in his little OCD-ness. Now, they've been married for almost 40 years. You know, my mom doesn't think my dad's OCD is that cute anymore because all the DVDs have to be in alphabetical order and everything has to be just right. And my mom for a long time thought it was cute, but after about a year of marriage, she's like, this isn't cute. Let's stop this right now. And this is what happens when you, I don't know, maybe that happens to you guys. It hasn't happened at my house yet, but <laughs> just making sure there's no lightning because you're not supposed to lie in church. Um, but this is what happens with Jesus is people are like, cool, healings feedings, miracles. Let's make this happen. And then Jesus is like, hold on. That's just to get you in the door to find out that this is everything. This isn't about you getting fed. This isn't about you getting fixed. This is about everything changing. You see, the problem is, is that a lot of people view following Jesus as what I like to call fire insurance. And it's this thing where you've heard enough to know that if you don't follow Jesus, you go to hell. And you know that hell is the place of, of torment and suffering, and you think, not for me. So I know that if I, if I get baptized, if I give my life to Jesus, I can go to heaven. Let's sew that up, right? You're like, I'll get that sewn up, I'll get my Roth IRA funded, and I'll make sure my kid's college fund is good, I'll retire, I'll get the lake house, the beach house, whatever, everything will be good. I got all of it lined up in a row. But what Jesus is offering us is not fire insurance. What Jesus is calling us to is a complete and total selling out of everything. A complete and total commitment of all that we are. Read verse 34 again. When he says, if anyone wants to come after me, take up your cross and deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me. You see, we, we, we read that verse and we go, yeah, I've heard that before. Cool. Yeah, I know it. But you have to remember that Jesus is, is calling the 21st century to this, but Jesus is specifically saying this in the 1st century. And so what has become a little bit trite to us, because we wear crosses on our necklace and we put crosses on the wall and it's a decoration in our house, what becomes trite to us is not trite in the 1st century. The best thing that I, I can come close to, and I still think this is a little bit hokey, is to say, instead of a, a cross on the wall of your house, put an electric chair. 
Because when Jesus calls people in the first century to take up their cross, he's calling them to one of the scariest things that Israelite people in the first century know. If Rome had a revolt that they had to put down, do you know what they did? They nailed those people to a cross in the middle of the busiest road and said, you try to revolt, this is what happens. When you were put on a cross, they would drive nails in between the two bones of your wrists and in between the ankle bones of your feet. Before that, they would probably whip and flog you to the point where you just want to die. And they would leave you hanging there for hours until your arms could no longer support you and you can no longer catch your breath. So for them, to take up their cross is a gruesome and scary thing. Asking them to take up their cross isn't just, hey, wear a necklace to church and wear a necklace to school and be offended if someone says a bad word. Asking them to take up their cross is asking them to take on the most frightening thing they've ever seen. And Jesus is asking them to do it because he's about to do it. He's calling us to figuratively find ways to embody sacrificial love. But he's, call, find, he's, calling, them, he's calling himself to literally take up his cross. He's saying there's no more sandwiches, there's no more doctor's visits. This is about the real deal. Here's where this gets a little, bit, a little bit hectic. You see, what happens is I've now told you that Jesus expects you to give up everything. He expects you to, to deny your rights. Yes, he expects you to deny your rights, your privileges, your preferences. He expects you to give up all of those things for the cause of something greater than yourself. And I believe that there will come a time where we are held accountable for whether or not we did that. But I also believe that there are people who could kill a hundred people with, with, with a gun and they could commit adultery a thousand times there, that, that we, could, uh, we could steal, we could kill, we could destroy, we could do anything we want and with our last gasp on earth, call out to Jesus for mercy and I believe that Jesus will give us mercy and I believe that he will save us. But there's this balance where I'm like, okay, so if you're going to forgive everyone, then surely you'll forgive me for not taking up my cross and following you perfectly, Right? And it's this tension that exists where I'm like, I know what you expect, but I don't know if I can do that. But there will come a time when you ask me if I did, and I, I want to be able to say yes. And it's hard. It is so hard. It would be so much easier if Jesus had come and had said, hey, listen, in the end, make sure you've got your salvation sewn up just like you have your 401k sewn up. In the end, at some point when you know you're getting close to death, go ahead and get baptized. Just, just get right. And there are people who that's the only message they will hear. There are people who in their last chance will have an opportunity. But there are people like you and me, you're in this room today and you're hearing this. You have an obligation to something bigger than yourself. Hey, Ben Stroop, you have an obligation to something bigger than Ben Stroop. And that's a weight to carry. It's not easy. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that because Jesus has saved you, if Jesus has saved you, eventually you get to go to the place called heaven. And I believe that even if you don't deny yourself for another minute of this life, that there will still be forgiveness for you. But I also believe that you have been called to something bigger. That you have been called to bring heaven to earth. And if you have any experience outside the walls of this room and the walls of your house, you know that there are places in this county, there are places in this state, and there are places in this world that are hell on earth. And it's our responsibility to say, you know what? It's not my job to carve out my own little piece of heaven. It's my job to take heaven to the places that are hell. It's my job to make this not about me. This last week, we challenged you to, to, to take part in Rice and Beans Week. We said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to find a way to eat as cheaply as possible all week. And maybe that means for you and your family, you buy a big bag of rice, you buy a big bag of beans, and you eat nothing else all week, and that would, it would save your grocery bill tremendously. Maybe for you, it means as a family, you commit to, hey, we're not buying coffees. Hey, we're not going out to eat. Maybe it meant as a family, hey, we're just going to eat what's in the house right now. But we asked you to do that because we said that this Sunday, today, we're taking up an offering to go to a place that you've never been. I venture to guess that no one in this room has even set foot in the continent of Africa but we've been talking for a couple weeks about this place in Africa called Somaliland. And we said in Somaliland, they're having a drought like no one has ever experienced. And they're having this famine that they can't even begin to describe and the organizations are, are just confounded as to how to fix. And what you can do is if you have a consumer mindset, you say, I don't, I don't care about Africa. I'm I'm good. But when your mindset is not me, it becomes your problem. When your mindset is not me, videos like this one break your heart because you see that these people are people just like you and me. They look different and they speak differently, but they are the same people that God created just like you and me. Check out this video. <laughs> وصاي سوحرا ما قرنا عيو وبعدين ده اللح بلوت صدق سنة بوقت جالسين هست مربع مرة نور الليت صدق سنة وحجيل البنا هست محمد وايرات وحنا لكم ما ينقى وحنا هنجري ونرقت عنوان أولا نقال بان الله ينادي بان الله قادي نشرتوا أورا بان الله وحنا قابل شقق مع الله ولا في عنا نقول فلان بان هست وقت ومرتك وكاي ولا شنت بمنا هنجري
And see, when I'm, when I'm a consumer, it doesn't bother me. It's not my food. It's not my family. But when I focus myself on something much bigger than me, that becomes my problem. And when God has blessed me more than I've ever deserved, more than I'll ever understand why, that becomes my problem. And it's not just in Africa. There are kids right now at home in Mason, Bracken, Fleming, Brown, Adams County, who have not eaten a hot piece of food since they left school Friday afternoon. There are adults in this county who have slept the last few weeks on someone else's couch because they're homeless and they don't want to sleep on the street. There are people in this county who have an addiction that other people have told them it's your fault, you get out of it. But they're in a cycle that they don't know how to break on their own. There are people in, the, in this county who have diagnosis, diagnoses that they'll never be able to, to do anything about because they can't afford to get to the doctor. There are people who are hungry because they only have enough money to feed their kids. And when we say, not my problem, not me, I'm not hungry, we reflect the consumer mindset but instead, when we dive in headfirst and we go to places like the Shepherd's House and we go to places that, like the Women's Crisis Center and other places who need our help and who we say, hey, we're here, what can we do? It changes everything. And it takes these places that looked like hell and it turns them into a little slice of heaven on earth. There's one more group of people that we, we tend to view as not our problem. And it's the 50,000. Because amongst those who are hurting, amongst those who are hungry, amongst those who are alone, is a large group of people who don't know Jesus. And we see them at work, we see them in our home, we see them in our neighborhood. And you know what? Without ever saying it, you know what we say? I'm going to heaven. <laughs> Based on the way you're acting, you're not. Not my problem. But Jesus is calling us to make it to our that the hungry, that the hurting, that the imprisoned, that the naked, that the, that, the, that the addicted are our problem. And I'm going to tell you that we will not rest as a church until we've started to find ways to help these problems, to fix these problems to reach the 50,000, to help the addicted, to feed the hungry. Whatever it takes, we have to do. And I cannot. The leadership team cannot. We must. If you're not a part of something, if you don't have a, a plan, if you're not a part of, of a team, I need you to figure out how to get on board. 
because we cannot be consumers anymore. Here's one thing I, I do want to tell you, and I want to make this clear because I've, I've had to make this clear to myself. Like, this is a, a, hard, a hard and heavy topic. It's hard and it's heavy for, for a couple of reasons. It's hard and it's heavy because, because we know it. And it's hard because I, I know we'll be held accountable. But, but here's what I do want you to know. What I want you to know is that we won't always get it right. What I want you to know is that I believe passionately in these issues. And for a long time, I've, I've dialed it back because I, I want you to like me. But I'm sick of it. And I feel like we, we've, we've let each other down and that we let these problems continue. But here's, here's the good news. The good news is, is that in the midst of those problems, in the midst of those situations, there has come this moment where Jesus came for you and for me. And in, the, and in spite of our biggest weaknesses, in spite of our biggest failures, Jesus came to forgive us. And he came to say, you know what? I, I know you don't always get it right. I know you haven't always gotten it perfect. But what I want you to know is that I forgive you. You see, Jesus was the ultimate, not me. Jesus was the one who said from the beginning, it's not about me. Paul tells us that he, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And being willing to submit himself to death, even death, on a cross. Because he looked out at creation and he saw our brokenness and he said, someone needs to do something about it and it will be me. And so friends, you have been forgiven and you are forgiven if you're a follower of Jesus, even when you fall short, even when you don't get it right, even when things don't go your way. Jesus has still forgiven you. And so here in these next moments, as the men are going to pass the bread and they're going to pass the cup, I want you to do two things. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to, to remind yourself before you think of anything else, I want you to remind yourself that, you know what, I don't get it right. I haven't gotten it right. But if Jesus has been in your life, if Jesus has saved you, if you've given your life to Jesus through baptism and you've said, you know what, Jesus, I'm all in for you, remind yourself that he forgives you. The second thing I want you to do is as you're thinking through that, start thinking through what it's going to look like for you to go all in. Start thinking through what it's going to look like for you to give up some things and to serve in some ways here in this building and here in our community and here across the globe where you finally say, it's not about me. But know you are forgiven.